Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility, aiming to lay the ground for the tipping points that will carry us into a new system. Ilya Prigogine said that when a system is far from equilibrium, small islands of coherence in the sea of chaos can bring it to a whole new order. And that's what we need now. And with that in mind, I need to remember to tell you that we have an online gathering coming up. It's on the last Sunday of October, the 29th. It's called Dreaming Your Death Awake. And it does what it says on the tin. I inhabit a reality where we can only truly live if we have learned how to embrace our death. And we can only die with full awareness if we've learned how to live. So this gathering explores the first part of that, really delving into what it feels like to be fully aware of and fully in love with our own deaths. How we can live each moment with death as our advisor. The gathering is four hours long. It starts at 5pm UK time. So hopefully it's open to the most number of people around the world. You will find details in the show notes. I put a link and they're also on the website at accidentalgods.life. Go to the gatherings tab. With that out of the way, I would like to introduce you to the two people who are this week's guests. Anne Bicley is a biologist and an avid gardener. She is also amongst the planet's leading experts on the microbial life of soil and its crucial importance to human well-being and survival. She is married to David Montgomery, who's a professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington. David has studied everything from the ways that landslides and glaciers influence the height of mountain ranges to the way that soils have shaped human civilizations, both present and past. And this last led him to write a number of books, including Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, which explores how our historic and contemporary farming practices have critically undermined the living soil on which we depend. And then following that book, David and Anne together co-wrote The Hidden Half of Nature, The Microbial Roots of Life and Health, and then went on to write the book that we're going to be exploring today. It's called What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. And before I say anything about that, I promised also to tell you that David is in a band called Big Dirt, which is, and I quote directly from their Facebook page, Americana Alternative, whatever that means. Roots folk rock with something to say and fun to listen. You know I know nothing about music. I'm sure it's grand and lovely and wonderful, and you should go and listen to it. I have put a link in the show notes. The book, however, I know a lot about. It's one of those with pretty much every page turned over, top and bottom, and lots of fluorescent highlighter all over it in a way that leaves faith ice quenching because that's book vandalism. But I devoured this book at the beginning of the year. And if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, you will have heard me mention it more than once. 
It's the most readable exploration I've come across of the interplay between soil and the plants that we grow and the animals that eat those plants and then the food that we make from the plants and the animals. This is a crucial cycle. The three things that we need to survive are shelter, water and food. And we could argue at length about the other two, but food? We are messing that up really, really badly. And yet, there are glimmers of hope. And what I really took from this book was a detailed understanding of how different the food is when it's grown in what we might call commercial agribusiness industrial farming, compared to organic farming, compared to what I would call regenerative farming, which is no-till or minimal-till and no inputs. They are so different and the outputs might look the same. A bottle of milk looks like another bottle of milk, but the actual content, one of them has omega-6, omega-3 ratios that might well actually do you harm, and the other has the ratios that we evolved to thrive on. So this is one of those conversations that I have been wanting to have for months. There was so much to talk about. We tried to fit as much as we could into our hour, and I hope it's useful. But definitely, you will want to read the book when you've listened to this. It's mind-blowing, but it's also completely inspiring. So here we go. People of the podcast, please welcome Anne Bickley and David Montgomery, authors of What Your Food Ate. David and Anne, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. I am so grateful for you guys making time in what sounds like the schedule from hell, but that's because you're both really, really smart academics with lots of good things to say. How are you and where are you on the morning with you? Well, we are sitting here in Seattle. It is uh, just a little bit before 10 a.m. And so we are uh, both sipping on our cups of tea and doing quite well. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Fantastic. Yay. Thank you. Okay, I, I suddenly want to go down the rabbit hole of what kind of tea and is it really very good for you? But we'll we'll not go there just yet. We can get to that in the end. Because you guys have co-authored What Your Food Ate. And the subtitle is How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health, which sounds to me that it should be right on the top of pretty much everybody's cascade of what's really important once they've dealt with small matters like paying the bills and managing to stay alive. Both of which are not necessarily a given these days. We're recording this on the day that the UK's Prime Minister has decided to ditch all of the UK's climate targets. So, you know, the the whole concept of paying the bills and staying alive has just dropped another notch on somebody's sense of scale. So we'll let that go. This book, this book is a geek's wonder, but it's also incredibly readable. I was delighted to discover 56 pages of references on your website. I think the idea that you put them on the website, and I'm guessing that means you can update them when you need to, is is truly wonderful. But it means that the book, to me, read more like a novel. Not that it was fictional, but that the, the lyrics flowed through and it made a really interesting story. And so I would like to start from the ground up, probably with David, but frankly, whoever wants to answer. 
We're starting, let's take back, because you've written a bunch of other books, and we started with Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. You went to the hidden half of nature, and then you went on to Growing a Revolution. And you guys seem to me to really understand what our relatively recent evolutionary history and our relatively recent evolutionary mode of feeding ourselves is doing to the land. So, David, could you just take us on a really rapid tour through humanity and our relationship to the soil beneath our feet? Uh, yeah, sure. It's it's been a fun uh, journey working on those books, and you know, and the people who ask, you know, whether we're crazy to work together as a husband and wife team on writing some of them, you know, there's only one answer to that, and it's like, yeah, perhaps, but but it's working so far. Uh, sure is. And uh, you know, we're Anne is a biologist, and I'm a geologist, and so th that combination of backgrounds and disciplines gives us a perspective not only on the sort of the way things that are, are working today in terms of the processes going on in our bodies and the soils around the earth and with the climate and so on, but it also gives us a historical perspective to look at the, the long-term trajectory of just what we've been doing on this planet, how we've been doing it, how we've been making our living and feeding ourselves and treating the land. And that's really how we kind of got started in thinking about soils. Because um, you know, a little bit of intellectual trivia, I guess, is like the one class that Ann and I took together in graduate school was actually a soils class. And so it's kind of funny that 30 years later, <laughs> we're actually writing about and thinking about soils because that wasn't the focus of either of our graduate work. But if we look, if we think about soils that way, and we, we sort of trace the, the quick summary of how we sort of moved through thinking about those books, the, the Dirt book got us started on it. And it was one where I've worked as a geologist on erosion problems, thinking about how um, erosion shapes natural landscapes, the shapes of, of, of landforms that we live on and see and enjoy and, and, and that we work as, as farmers. Um, and... I was very interested in how the way people treated land affected the way uh, the soil was able to then support societies. And the short summary of that book, looking into the last 10,000 years of agricultural history, is the societies that don't take care of the soil don't last. It's, you know, we, we tend to take the soil for granted, um, and yet it is a, a resource that we can exhaust and deplete and degrade in ways that will affect our descendants, but it plays out over short time scales, which makes it kind of hard to address sometimes. Are there any societies that do take care of the soils properly? Uh, yeah, there's been there've been a few, few examples through history, and it depends on what time scale you want to look at in terms of how you define properly and sustainable and so forth. There's very few that have taken good care of their land over really long periods of time, say many centuries to thousands of years, unless you look at some places that are in big river floodplains where nature fixes the damage that people do through farming through the deposition of, you know, a fresh layer of silt each time it floods. Uh, which can re can refresh the mineral soil and replace soil that was lost to erosion. But on shorter timescales, there have been societies that have been very interested in practices that help to sustain fertility. A lot of traditional farming practices in uh, regions all around the world have done things like incorporated legumes into planting to put nitrogen into the soil, um, to use cover crops to protect the crops from erosion, and to rotate crops to try and... Um, uh, foster productivity and, and help defeat pests and pathogens. And those are all really good ideas that spring from traditional farming practices and indigenous farming practices, you know, literally all around the world. 
and I highlighted, I think, three societies in, in the dirt book that had done a, had actually built soils that were better than the native soils of, of their region. Uh, and and the, okay. probably the best example of that are the, the, the native Amazonians um, who d- uh, built up what's known as the Terra Preto de India, the black earth soils of the Indians in, the, in Portuguese, if I'm translating correctly, which I wouldn't trust. And these are places where there's incredibly rich, fertile black soil around the most dense um, uh, human, native human populations in the Amazon. Um, when the natural soils in that area are really organic matter poor, not very productive, all the biologic activities in the canopy, not below the ground um, in, in, in a way. And so there are there are places where people have built those kinds of uh, fertile soils. And there's now been examples that archaeologists have discovered in, in West Africa and in Scandinavia, very similar processes of people building and improving fertile soils as a consequence of how they live on the land. So one of our challenges today is to take some of the wisdom that we can harness from those traditional practices and those historical examples and translate it into, okay, well, how would we do that, you know, at large scale to sort of feed the world rather than, you know, a village or two in the corner of, of some environment. Uh, so there are positive examples to look at, but when you look at the grand sweep of human history, there's a lot more negative examples. And we're, we're frankly in great danger of repeating some of the worst of those examples at a global scale now. So this is what puts this issue at the top of Anami agenda in terms of what we're thinking about and trying to write about today. And I'd love your comment that, you know, we should all be thinking about this issue because um, it's, it's all too easy to, to not really care about the soil. It's not something that it's, it's frankly, you know, it's not very sexy. It doesn't have very good PR. Um, and yet it's so vital, vitally important. Yeah. And we walk on it. it. Unless we're walking on concrete, we walk on it and we f- it feels like it's always there. It's hard to imagine that we are destroying it in real time. Can you, before we move on to the biology of soil in, in depth, but can you describe the worst of the civilizations that have already been and, and, what was the re- what were the actions that they undertook to destroy the soil, and what was the result? Yeah, you know, the, if you want to look around the world today for good examples of societies that destroyed the soil in the past, a couple of places to focus initially are Syria and Libya. These are not places that we look at today as being incredibly uh, prosperous and agricultural powerhouses. Yet, if you look back in the Roman era, you know, two thousand years ago, there's tax records of you know fairly decent harvests of, of wheat in particular off of the land um, in in the, the area around Aleppo, which is you know, a disaster zone now in Syria, and also in, in Libya. There's the second largest city of the Roman era was Timgad out in what's now the Libyan desert, where they were growing you know, enough to feed a, a thriving local populace in places where the soil is literally gone now off the hillsides. Right. Um, Right. So there, there's some bad examples. If you lose the soil, you lose the ability to raise a large amount of food. Now, and I'm not arguing that we're going to lose the soil globally. We're not going to run out of dirt, <laughs> but we may, you know, as our population keeps rising, if we continually degrade the ability of the world's soils to feed ourselves, we're working at cross purposes that will that will ripple through society as food shortages and unrest and geopolitical instability. Um, so it, it's a huge issue. Okay, so we may not run out of actual physical stuff to walk on, <laughs> but we may well run out of something in which we can grow food that's actually going to help us 
to be human and alive. So moving to Anne, can we begin to look into the biology of what healthy soil is and how it works? Let's let's pretend we're in the Amazon and we've got some of this amazing black soil that they've created. We could perhaps look at how they created it in a minute, but what's in the soil? I read, I think in Nature last week, something like 75% of species living on the planet are under the soil. Mm. Which means when we're looking at the sixth mass extinction and worrying about 95% species extinction, that basically means everything on the surface and there might be a few things left underneath. Either that or we've got the numbers wrong, but that's a separate question. Let's have a look at what healthy soil is and how it functions. Sure. That's an interesting um, interesting note you just said about uh, the article that you read recently because I've been, I've been working on... Um, a piece recently, and it's all coming back to me what I used to say when we were in the middle of uh, writing the hidden half of nature, and that is that microbiomes, you know, whether in the soil or the body, they are probably um, the greatest unknown conservation project uh, out there, It, which, you know, is kind of the, the tagline on um, what Dave was talking about when he said that you know, it's really hard to get people to focus on soil. It's um, it's underneath us. You had mentioned with, that we walk on it. So then you try to get people focused on little tiny organisms that we can't even see that live in this stuff that we walk on and grow our food in. And, you know, that's a high bar to get over and mm. get people to. But once somebody does get there and they start to take a peek at what is happening in the soil and what makes for healthy soil, it becomes, you know, quite fascinating, quite significant, and the pieces start to fall into place. And I would say probably one of the, um, you know, among the hallmarks for healthy soil, what we know about the soil microbiome, and this is where sort of the technical terms of science get in the way a little bit, because when you look at the plant microbiome and you look at the soil microbiome, it is really difficult to say where one ends and where the other begins. And that's particularly true for the root system of a plant. Um, and we know that uh, one of the most life-dense, biodiverse places on this planet is, you had, you had mentioned the Amazon um, soils, and I've already not answered your question on that, but... <laughs> Um, <laughs> I will say, don't worry. I will say that um, what we know about a healthy soil is um, it's not it's more you know life dense, more biodiverse than than some of these classic above ground ecosystems that we think about. The Amazon being one of them, and what sort of runs this underground world. Uh, you 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 sort of went there. It reminded me when you were um, kind of introing this. Uh, is is food food for all of these microorganisms that comprise um, really most of the life uh, in the soil? And most of that life, Amanda, is around the roots of the plants. It's not, you know, in, unless you're in a super dense forest, you know, it's not going to be. 20 feet or 20 meters, you know, away from the plant. It's tucked in right next to and even inside of roots. That's where all of this, all of this life in the soil is really congregating. And why is that? Well, these plants that have been evolving a long time, 
uh, and have gotten quite smart. Um, they're feeding all of these microbes um, with exudates, with food. Think about it like a, a microbial buffet. And the plants with their wonderful chemistry can gin up just about anything. And uh, this is how they are recruiting and retaining the microbes that help them do innumerable things to that root system. It's through feeding them exudates. Now, these microbes are part of an ecosystem underground, and they associate with larger organisms, worms, beetles, things like that that we can see. And those organisms thrive on carbon. Carbon like uh, was added and has been added to these terra preta soils. You know, carbon is kind of the lifeblood uh, of soils, and, and it is in... Um, makes up about half of organic matter. So you get an organic matter rich soil, it's feeding all these larger organisms and creatures. And that is part of, you know, of the functional ecosystem that the microbes are in that congregate around their roots. And the other thing to sort of wrap on this point that you've asked about is that we think evolution is uh, you know, often in school, it's taught as, oh, it's this, you know, head on challenge and confrontation. And it's just this, you know, it's this um, prey like an elk, you know, being pitted against a grizzly bear, you know, those kinds of things are often, of course, you know, examples in Africa, lions out on the Serengeti hunting, but symbioses. So, you know, these are the mutual, mutually beneficial interactions between life forms. These are just as much of a driving force in evolution as this head-on challenge kind of notion. It's just that symbioses get, you know, about two sentences in your standard um, <laughs> biology textbook and, and all the rest goes on to the, the head-on confrontation. But when you really think about it, if you're a little tiny one-celled organism, you're not going to accomplish much on your own. You're a little tiny one-celled organism. The only way to really thrive and be living, you know, your best life out there is if you are in some kind of a symbiotic relationship. Because if you can rely on some other organism to do things for you, like give you food and shelter, which is what the microbiomes are doing around the roots of the plant or in the human gut, your chances of thriving in your life are much, much higher. So that's the other kind of point about life in the soil. The ecosystems are, um, they're vast, they're complex, but all this life is, is actually knit together out of necessity. And a lot of that turns on nutrition, what, you know, and which is, you know, we, we thought a lot about this and in part, it's why we came up with the title for the latest book what your food ate. Yeah, yeah, I get that, you know, we're eating our food too, but it's important to think, gosh, what did the plants eat? And of course, animals were a little, it's a little easier for us to, to think about what they eat, but, you know, our plants, wow, they're eating a lot of microbial, um, a lot of nutrients and compounds that are modulated by the microbiome. So you want, you want a full, robust uh, life-dense area around the roots of the plants so that plants are able to pull in all of these things they need. Thank you. Yeah, there was a meme going around somewhere at the start of the year that said, uh, if it's a plant, eat it. If it ate a plant, eat it. If it was made in a plant, forget it. <laughs> Which, it. You know, up to a point, is it kind of works, but it doesn't 
if you're eating plants that were eating crap, basically, you know, eating plants that were effectively eating the plant equivalent of McDonald's. So can we, I don't mind who answers this, dive a little bit, partly because I live in a small holding and regenerative farming is my thing. So the people on the podcast are quite used to us getting geeky about this, <laughs> that plants are little miracle workers who use the energy of sunlight to convert the carbon dioxide in the air and the cat's about to leap onto the keyboard and probably switch me all off. <laughs> they they convert the carbon dioxide in the air into carbohydrates that they exude from their roots out into soil. I listened to something with David Johnson from New Mexico a while back where it seemed to me that he was basically taking New Mexico desert and by inoculating it with bacteria and fungi from his amazing Johnson Sioux bioreactor. Listeners, there is actually a cat on the desk. So if you hear Paddy Paws, that's what it is. Um, inoculating basically grit with bacteria and fungi and then planting plants into it and getting soil as a result, or what we would call soil. We can look at the difference between dirt and soil and Gay Brown at some other point, but I think this is one of the occasions where we have two cultures separated by common language. I don't think they mean the same in the States as they mean in the UK. We'll, we can go into that. Can we have a little look at what it is that the bacteria and the fungi specifically need from the plant and what the plant needs from them? So we can get an idea of why the extraordinary small-celled life in the soil is so important. Does that make sense as yeah. a question? And I don't mind who answers it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, all right. I love the cat. That's talk. the cat. <laughs> so it's a Maine Coon. It's an American cat. Ah, there we go. Pesky <laughs> as usual. All right. Um, so, what are plants producing with their monopoly on on uh, sunshine? Carbohydrates are certainly one of those things. And the other thing that plants are able to produce is um, think about it kind of as a full, complete diet. It's carbohydrates, it's proteins, and it's fats, and it's phytochemicals. And so these, you know, major groups of compounds are flowing out of the plant roots, feeding all of these microbes. And one of the things, uh, and this makes, you know, common sense when you just sort of stop and think about it, the concentration of all of those exudates, all of these plant-made compounds are highest right at the location where they're leaving the root system. They're not, you know, there's not an abundance of these exudates in the furthest reaches away from the root system. They are right around the root. So this is what is drawing all of these microbes because there's not a lot of other things to eat in the soil unless you are, um, some kind of, you know, predator driven thing and you've got a really healthy soil and there's a lot of other life forms out there for you to eat up. A little tiny one celled organism is feasting at this smorgasbord, this plant made smorgasbord around the root system. So that, that is what the plant is doing for, um, the microbial end of soil life. And so what are the, what's the microbial end of soil life then doing for these plants? This is part of this grand, symbiosis that's happening. Plants being stuck in place and their roots only go so far, um, they rely on mycorrhizal fungi in particular to go and gather these things at more distant locations in the soil and bring them back. Um, there are phosphorus 
there's a ton of research out there on um, fungi being able to retrieve and gather phosphorus from locations beyond the reach of a plant root. And mycorrhizal fungi themselves are a little bit root-like. They've got these long structures that are part of their body called hyphae, and they're really kind of like a biological highway. So the fungi load their highway up with phosphorus, even with um, other uh, other things like zinc, uh, with probably all kinds of things that we don't even yet have a complete understanding about. And they get on the highway and they travel back to the plant and the plant says, thank you very much. I really needed that zinc and that phosphorus and oh, and this other compound that the human beings don't know about yet. And in exchange, um, I'm going to be feeding you more exudates. So this is, you know, this is very much sort of a a marriage of necessity. The microbes are bringing to the plants what they need and the plants are giving to the microbes what they need. And this is all around um, at a really big picture level around nutrition and nutrients that each of those, you know, respective life forms, the botanical world and the microbial world need for, you know, their own particular um, kind of health, right? Plants have different health needs than microbes, but what is um, just, you know, fascinating and intricate about the, the symbioses between these two great groups of life is they're getting what they need for their, you know, particular metabolism, their particular, you know, defense system and so on from their partner. So that that's, you know, kind of in a nutshell how these exchanges work and why, you know, why it's absolutely necessary that, Hmm. that microbes have plants and plants have microbes. And that when we disrupt this, as you said, there's so many things we don't know. We don't know what it is we're disrupting. So let me just get things straight in my head. We have fungal hyphae that can stretch for miles, as I understand it. I remember Elaine Ingham saying that fungi are miners, as in the sort of miners that mine coal. They can go down and gather all kinds of elements. I, I remember Dan Kutcher saying that you know, vegans nowadays stuff themselves full of cobalt because they need more cobalt. But if we were growing proper vegetables, the cobalt would be in the vegetables and we wouldn't need to be taking it as a as a, an added extra. And that presumably it's the fungi that are beavering off and bringing cobalt back and offering it up to the plant. You know, here you go, have some cobalt. You need cobalt in presumably tiny amounts to act as a catalyst in some kind of enzymatic system. And and in return, you give me some more carbohydrate. I'll grow a little bit longer and I'll go and beaver off and find you something else. Is that a fair assessment, maybe David, of of how, how this exchange works? Yeah. And when you think about it... Um it's the the, the the fungi in particular, in the case you're bringing up, are providing uh, things that are really micronutrients for the most part to the plants. Um, things like that cobalt, things like the zinc that Ann mentioned, um, you know, iron, copper, which we need for maintaining our immune system. We, we don't need a lot of copper, but we can't eat pennies. Where are we going to get it? We're going to get it from our food and from our vegetables. And these plants have developed the symbiotic relationships uh, that Anne was mentioning that, you know, we can trace right back to the origin of land plants some 450 million years ago. These are very ancient relationships that have obviously, you know, changed and evolved since then, but they're deeply embedded in the very fabric of, of ecology. And 
when you think about the you know, plants being stuck in place, as Anne mentioned, uh, and how abundant, or shall we say not very abundant, things like zinc or cobalt are in, in most rocks, they're not very common elements. So, you know, the odds of there being enough to support a plant within the, the reach of its roots, as it's particularly as it's starting to germinate and starting to grow, are pretty low. And so the strategy of recruiting for the cost of a little bit of sugar that you can produce from sunlight, the cost of then recruiting some allies in the soil to go out and be the miners and the truckers that find those special things you need and bring them back to the mothership, um, you know, it's actually a really good strategy for thriving not only the plant life, but the microbial life below ground too. Um, I mean, fungi in particular have one real disadvantage relative to plants. They can't photosynthesize. So you have fungi that will either specialize in, uh, you know, consuming uh, decaying organic matter, the saprophytic fungi, or you have fungi that, um, you know, partnered like the mycorrhizal fungi who are in effect being fed by the plants and providing a service in return. So there's this, you know, you go out to the 30,000 foot level on this. And there's these grand partnerships between the botanical world and the fungal world to promote the health and growth of both. And, you know, it's, it's not so much the major elements the plants are getting out of the partnership, although they can be. Um, but the micronutrients are really a key and that's a key to crop health. And that translates all the way through to human health as we talk about and what your food ate. But the, the plants, it turns out, have different pathways for triggering their exudate production. And when they get a whole lot of nitrogen and a whole lot of phosphorus and a whole lot of potassium, but particularly the nitrogen in a readily soluble, easy to suck up through the roots using them as straws rather than two-way superhighways, uh, the plants get lazy and they cut back on their exudate production. And that disrupts all those symbiotic relationships that Anne was talking about. So our conventional farming practices that we've gravitated towards over the last hundred years, lots of tillage and lots of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer have really undermined those, those uh, partnerships that are really at the very foundation of, of how health flows from the land into us. Brilliant. That, that was the best segue I've ever heard because that's exactly where I wanted to go next. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, so we have 10,000 years of human agriculture. And years ago, I wrote a series of books about the Boudican era. And it apparently turns out that the south of Britain was one of the most productive areas for agriculture in the whole of what became the Roman Empire until the Romans arrived and broke up a system that was doing really well. But until then, that area was producing as much corn as anywhere else in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't matched from then until after the end of the Second World War, which is when we began the process of turning oil into food, essentially. So we had 2,000 years of crap agriculture because the Romans broke up a social system that was working. Whole other podcast. However, this process of turning oil into food, let's go into that because it strikes me this is not only really important for understanding the human gut biome and human health. I was at a real food and farming conference this weekend and I, they had examples of wheat and they had current industrial wheat, which was about a foot high. They had the YQ, which is yield quality, which is 16 different species of ancient wheat that they're growing, which was two and a half foot high and very different. And they had the old Welsh one that was four foot high because you needed the straws to be thatch. But the modern wheat can't engage 
in interactions with the soil microbiome anymore. It doesn't have the capacity to do that. It's been bred such that if you don't feed it the NPK that we're so used to throwing onto the soil, it, it just dies. So it's also illegal to share non-genetically produced grain in the UK and Europe. So you kind of have to share it secretly under the counter because otherwise you're in trouble. So question, let's have a look at the NPKs, but particularly I want to have a look at why. Was it, why was it NPK? They're macronutrients. Is it the case that we put on what we could measure and we ignored what we couldn't measure? Because I'd really like to look into then what is it that we're not seeing yet? Mm. Obviously the unknown unknowns, but there must be tendrils of what we're not seeing. So let's just do the macro picture and then let's get into the micro. Well, you know, if you want the, the really deep dive into the history of sort of how uh, intensive fertilization came to dominate modern conventional agriculture, I recommend the Dirt Book. Okay. Because I go cool. way into the history of the 19th century changes in agriculture that kind of led up to it. But the short answer is that by, um, you know, over the long run, a lot of tillage, a lot of plowing will degrade soil organic matter, which is a good source of nutrition for those soil microbes that, that partner with plants as well. And Can you tell us how it degrades the soil organic matter? Just just briefly, what is it that it does that, that is so bad? Yeah, sure. Uh, what tillage does in terms of disrupting the soil is it opens the soil up, it basically oxygenates it, and it produces a bacterial growth that, you know, the bacteria go crazy. They're like, hey, great! And they basically consume more of the native soil organic matter for, for their purposes. And that can actually result in a little burst of fertility because that gets that kickstarts some of those microbial processes that can help grow crops this year. But if you do it year after year after year after year, such that you degrade the soil organic matter, you end up undermining the soil ecosystem um, and you can compromise the, the productivity of the soil in the long run. And by the 19th century in the westernized world, in, in Britain, Western Europe uh, in particular, and, and across much of the United States, uh, there had been centuries of tillage on land that had degraded it to the point where if you added a bunch of um, nitrogen or phosphorus, you could really boost productivity. Um, and why? It's because th those two elements in particular are sort of known to be very limiting on plant growth. You know, you're not going to get robust plant growth if you don't have enough nitrogen or enough phosphorus. Okay. Now, a healthy, fertile soil with a lot of organic matter will have a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus locked up in that organic matter that the microbes can unlock and trade to the plants. So if you have a, an organic matter rich soil, if you add more nitrogen to it, you're not going to get much in the way of fertility. But if you take an already degraded soil, and you add a bunch of nitrogen and phosphorus, the limiting elements for plant growth, you can get a boost in yield. And that's where in the 19th century, uh, farmers in, in Britain and in the US were like, you know, thrilled to be able to actually have a source of nitrogen and phosphorus rich um, materials to, or particularly phosphorus in the 19th century. It was in the early 20th century that, that the Haber-Bosch process really unlocked the nitrogen key. Um, but, you know, the ability to add those two key elements for plant growth meant that farmers could really boost their yields. Now, what was not known at the time is that those all these microbial partnerships that Anne was talking about, those symbiotic relationships between the plants and the fungi in, in particular, but also soil bacteria, uh, are disrupted by not only tillage, but also by the over-application, shall we say, of readily soluble nitrogen fertilizers in particular. Now, and those are the ones that are made out of, out of natural gas through the Haber-Bosch process uh, today. But if we look at why that is, 
that really wasn't understood until after the Second World War, when microbial ecology really sort of took off as a science um, and people recognized that many crops have um, sort of multiple gene pathways for producing exudates or not. And if they get a whole lot of nitrogen, if they get all the nitrogen they need, they tend not to invest in exudates. Now, why would that be? Well, think about it. If nitrogen is a, li a basic limiting factor for plant growth uh, and you're not having enough in the soil, well, you know, you, you sort of want more. So if you don't have much, you put out exudates to recruit those microbes to then go get you more nitrogen. And along with it comes the copper and the zinc and the selenium and all the micronutrients that you could need as well. So when plants are, are pampered, in effect, by having readily available nitrogen, they shut off their exudate faucet. Why? Because, well, why spend energy to get something you're getting for free? And so if your whole evolutionary um, pressures have led to a genetic system that was wired that way, we inadvertently undermined it by breeding crops to perform really well under really high nitrogen loads, because that really undermined their relationships with soil life in ways that uh, particularly undermined their provisioning for micronutrients which are really, which are, you don't necessarily need to grow big plants or to have high yields, but that are central to crop health and plant defense. And so it's, it's no mystery to, to me as to why global sales of pesticides went through the roof after global sales of synthetic fertilizers. We disarmed the natural defensive systems of our crops. And so then we needed to step in with another technological fix to solve the biological problem we made with our previous technological fix. Grand. And and it didn't hurt that the companies doing this had just come out of the Second World War and they were able to turn the technology that made explosives into making fertilizers and the technology that made nerve gases into making pesticides. And whoopee, we can sell these things and continue to get very rich. Yeah, there's a very, very interesting story there. And it's, you know, it's one in which all these sort of forces came into play to create the illusion of progress. Uh, well, the reality of higher yields on degraded fields, mm. but the the problems that, that came out of that that were unanticipated at the time have actually come back to really haunt us today. And so what Anne and I like to say is that while, while we were focused through much of the 20th century on you know maximizing crop yields so we could feed the world, what we need to do today is kind of take stock of what we've learned since then and what it's done to our land and our, and our, our public health in general. And, and focus now more on how can we move beyond simply aspiring to feed the world and, and into the realm of really trying to better nourish the world. And that gives you a whole different perspective on sort of how to think about farming practices because it takes us right back to those symbiotic relationships, how we treat the land, how we foster the provisioning of the mineral micronutrients in our crops, uh, the production of the phytochemicals that Anne mentioned earlier, the plant-made chemicals that they make for their own purposes, but that end up having very beneficial health effects in our bodies. When we get them, our, our farming practices have undermined their production as well. So if we focus on those aspects and not so much, well, we need, we need to grow quantities of food to feed everybody, right? We need to produce enough calories for people to survive. That should be the bait you know, it's a bottom line right there but we can shoot higher we can aspire to not only keep people alive but we can aspire to an agriculture that helps people thrive and when we do that we're talking about the connections between soil health crop health animal health and human health and that's exactly what we tried to lay out um, in terms of the scientific um, connections in what's your food aid yes and you did it beautifully because you managed to compare 
industrial farming, standard current practice farming with organic farming, and then both with regenerative farming in, in huge detail in terms of the nutrient qualities of what the products were. So let's dive into that. And let's have a look at the human gut biome, because we've got the soil has its own biome. And then everything that eats has its own gut biome. And it seems to me this is an emerging field of science. There's probably a lot more we don't know than we actually do know. But we know enough to know that this is crucial to human well-being and to what David was saying about creating a food and farming system that allows the soil and people to thrive. So tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah. You know, there's, despite the human gut and soil being, you know, utterly different ecosystems, there's some actually sort of underlying patterns and and themes that cut across, I would say, you know, most microbiomes. And one of those has to do with, again, you know, living your life as a microbe. And microbes that are members of microbiomes, you sort of have to think about them like words in a language or words in a sentence. And to them, context is everything. And so what I mean by context uh, is in part, well, what nutrients are available? Because depending on the nutrients, you know, I might do this or that. Or what metabolites are available here in this human gut for me to interact with? Oh, it's those type of metabolites. Well, that's my cue. And I respond, you know, with option A or option B. So in other words, microbiomes are highly responsive to what they're given. And in the human gut, you know, that is a closed system. It's not quite as porous and open as the soil. So it's really, um, I think, important to keep in mind that, you know, in that, that sort of, you know, closed system of our gut, our microbes cannot just sort of get up and walk out of our body and go get something else to eat somewhere else. Right. We can't send the fungal miners off to get what we want. It has to come in. Right. There's no fungal miners off to go get anything. <laughs> they are, you know, you're stuck in the gut. And so they are responding to everything that is in the human diet. And what is known, you know, again, this is like at the, you know, 20, 30,000 foot level, uh, just sort of, you know, unequivocally what is known about the human microbiome and with the bacteria, the most is known about bacteria. There are other, there's fungi and archaea and viruses that are part of our microbiome, but those are very hard to study. And the most is known about bacteria. And what we know about the bacteria in our gut is this, they thrive on uh, whole plant foods. And the reason for that is that they are able to break down the fiber and the phytochemicals, which are embedded in that fiber, uh, to not only, you know, get their own energy needs met, but they also produce constellation, a vast array. I don't know, you know, unfathomable, you know, those are the kinds of, of adjectives to put on the array of microbial metabolites that come out of the bodies of bacteria that are sitting down there in our gut. And it's when I say our gut and where all of these microbes are, I mean the colon specifically. This isn't in the upper end of the digestive tract. It's at the bottom, literally, part of our bodies. And uh, we lack 
the genes that make the enzymes to break down phytochemicals and fiber. So we are utterly dependent. And this goes back to my point earlier about symbiosis kind of, you know, running, running the show when it comes to microbiomes and their host. And these microbial metabolites are doing everything uh, in our bodies in one way or another. They're either playing a small part or a very large part, and they affect nearly, you know, every aspect of human physiology from, you know, the most basic is food digestion. They're making these enzymes to break the stuff down. These metabolites can go leave our gut and affect our cognition. They can affect our cardiovascular system. There's sort of, I I don't think that there's one part of the human body that a microbial metabolite that comes out of, you know, what they're doing with our diet there's no no place left untouched in our in our body. So this is why diet is hugely important. And with regard to phytochemicals, this is why it's so important that the plants that we do eat in the human diet, that they have a diversity uh, and an abundance of phytochemicals. And here I'm not saying a plant diet exclusively, because there are many things that we get from animal foods that you're never going to find in the green body of a plant. You know, the fatty acids that are found in in meat and dairy are, you know, their whole constellation of other health benefits that come from the healthy fats in animal foods. But it is to say, you know, every day, probably on your plate, you want to have a big pile of veg. You need Mm. to feed that colonic, you know, that cauldron down there in your bottom every single day. These microbes are hungry and they need nourishment. And when they don't get enough plant foods, they actually start consuming the mucus that lines our gut. And eating a little bit of mucus, you know, is fine. That's not a problem because our cells produce a lot of it. But when that's all they have to eat, they eat too much of it and you get no end of um, other problems that, that arise from that. So that's kind of the long and short of the human microbiome and in the gut at least. That was a brilliant edited highlights because I know we could talk about that alone for for several hours on end. Can we move to David then? In the time we have left, one of the things that really struck me in your book, let's take milk as an example, that milk that comes from cows that are fed in an industrial system, a 20th, 21st century system, has particular qualities. Milk that comes from grass-fed cows from a regenerative system which is trying to promote soil health has completely different qualities. It seemed to me reading your book that actually they're two different products. It's just that they look white and they come out of cows and everybody thinks cow juice is cow juice, (laughs) but they weren't. They're actually totally different things. So can you tell us about the kind of two different types of cow juice and why one is good and one really isn't? Yeah, this this is one of the sort of the really fascinating things that we we learned uh, writing what your food ate that I don't think either Anne or I had much of a, a hint about ahead of time. But in tracing those connections from how we treat the soil soil to, to how the health of our crops and health of our livestock, we got into that question of okay, well, what do what do cows in particular eat? And it turns out that there's um, two areas that seem to have you know very consistent differences in the peer reviewed scientific literature between cows that ate different diets, the sort of the modern industrial diet of um, essentially uh, corn and soy derived feed rations in feedlots, um, you know, after they leave their, after they're weaned and leave the, wherever they were raised and, and end up in the, in the commercial system. Uh, and then the other diet of sort of, you know, the hundred percent grass fed diet of cows are sort of eating what they evolved to eat. And 
while you might think that, oh, well, they're all eating plants, so what's the big deal? What's, it turns out they're eating very different parts of very different kinds of plants. So, And that results in differences in their fatty acid profile, their, their fat profile, and also in the number of phytochemicals that they have, the things that Anne was just talking about, that provide the feed some of the feedstock for those microbial alchemists in our colon that are making very health-promoting compounds when they then, in turn, process it. So what are those differences? Um, particularly when you look at the omega-3 and omega-6 fat profiles in meat and dairy, they're profoundly different in based on whether or not the animals were eating corn-derived, seed-derived uh, feeds in feedlots or grazing on living plants. Now, why would that be? Because it turns out that omega-3 fats are very integral to the process of photosynthesis. So the green parts of plants, you know, leaves, the things cows would graze on grass and leaves and things in a field are rich in omega-3 fats. Um, and it turns out that seeds, things that like corn and soybeans, um, things that their cattle's feed rations in feedlots are derived from, are rich in omega-6 fats. And those are both essential fats. And what that means is that our bodies can't make them from other things. We can't make them from scratch. We need to get them in our diet. And the same is true for cows. So the kind of fat profile that the cow is taking in through its um, diet, whether it's a lot of omega-6s in a feedlot or a lot of omega-3s in a, in a pasture, translate through to the character of the omega-6 to 3 ratio in their meat and in their dairy. And it turns out that uh, when you dive into the um, immunological literature, omega-6 fats are very intimately involved in triggering inflammation. Omega-3 fats are very intimately involved in quelling or terminating inflammation. Um, and we can go, we could talk for another hour or two about all the details of that, but it turns out that, you know, that means that when we are consuming, you know, 100% grass-fed meat and dairy, we're actually eating a product that has a very different effect in our bodies than one that when we're eating something that uh, um, has a very different omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. Now, how important that is in the grand scheme of one's individual health, well, that's obviously quite variable because your genes are going to matter. Whether you get any exercise is going to matter. What else you eat is going to matter. But, you know, there are real differences in both the phytochemical abundance and the fat profiles in meat and dairy raised in, you know, the modern industrial system versus a more regenerative and, and pasture-based system. Uh, so one of the big lifestyle changes for Ann and I, based on writing What Your Food Ate and educating ourselves on this issue, is that we've moved to pretty much, you know, if I have a choice, I'm going to eat, I'm going to insist on eating 100% um, grass-fed meat and dairy for the times that I do eat that. And that brings up a real big issue in terms of the debates that we have nationally and internationally about, you know, what should we be eating? Should we eat a plant-based diet versus, mm. uh, you know, one that includes animal products? And the, the, the perspective on that I would offer is that, well, you know, what you choose to eat is really an individual choice. And I'm not going to second guess that for anybody, but we should be asking the question of how were those plants raised? How were those, those animals raised that are producing the meat and dairy? Because... If you go to an all plant-based diet that is um, based on plants that were raised with very you know degradational farming practices that are ruining the soil and resulting in you know a hollow nutritional profile and what comes out of it, you know is that really better than you know having a modest amount perhaps of you know very responsibly raised uh, meat and dairy in one's diet that provides very different inputs? I think we should be asking the question how our food is raised as much as what it is that we're eating. Brilliant. Thank you. So Anne's had to go. We were on a very tight timetable, but David's hanging on for another few minutes. 
for which I am hugely grateful, because this is getting to our theory of change now. So we have established that soil health, plant health, animal health and human health are all integral, and that modern industrial practices are damaging all of these to the point of creating, if you read anything, Robert Lustig's Metabolical or anything like that, he reckons that 93% of the American public has metabolic disease, has, has actual mitochondrial dysfunction as a result of an industrial diet. And even if, it, even if it's half that, it's still too bad. And we haven't begun to get into the parts of your book where you are detailing the, the tests done on children and the residues of pesticides that are found in people. That's a whole other topic, but that is also damaging in itself. So in an ideal world, we would be consuming what we evolved to consume, which doesn't have industrial methods anywhere close to it. And there is a lot of work done elsewhere to demonstrate that small-scale mixed farms could easily feed the world. We don't have a problem of quantity of food production. What we have is a problem of quality and being price gouged by multinational companies that just want to make a profit. Let's take that as right. It's, it's, this is axiomatic of this podcast. We don't need to question that. What I want to ask you is, you've written this book. It seems to have got a lot of traction. Are you getting any traction at a policy level? Or is it the case that the multinationals just own policy such that it's going to be very hard to overturn? That's a really interesting question. And I would love to have a crystal ball to tell you how it's all going to turn out in about 20 or 30 years, um, which is the timescale that I think that, you know, we could conceivably try to shift the global ship of agriculture to a much more responsible and regenerative direction. Um, you know, I frankly, you know, oddly enough, I've actually seen more movement in the corporate world than the policy world towards embracing uh, regenerative principles and practices. Now, there's still a lot of argument about whether some of that is greenwashing or not. Um, but I've had some interesting um, inquiries from some fairly, very large corporations. These are not the ones that are selling fertilizers and selling pesticides. These are, you know, other large corporations involved in the global food system. There's a whole like, you know, layer upon layer of very large players in this, in that system. But there's there's some very large corporations that are very interested in supply chain continuity as sort of a potential disruptor to their business model. And they're looking at regenerative practices as a way to make the tips of their supply network, the farmers, actually more stable and profitable as the, the goal. And one of the things I've learned in looking into regenerative practices is that once farmers you know, re regenerate the fertility of their soil and thereby cut down on their use of fertilizers and pesticides and diesel, they're actually more profitable. So there, there's, yeah. a, there's sort of a, a, a crass profit motive that can actually help drive positive change in this circumstance where, um, and one of the things that's turned me into a bit of an optimist on this issue is that when you get economic and environmental interests lining up in the same direction, you know, that could be a catalyst for some fairly profound change fairly rapidly. Now, I've been most disappointed uh, both nationally and internationally on the policy level in terms of adoptions. Where I've seen the most movement of that is actually if you look at the state level in the U.S., there's a lot of states. I think it's over 25 now. So, you know, maybe even more than half the U.S. states. And I won't tell you whether the blue or the red ones because it's actually a, a bit of a mix um, that have adopted soil health policies, um, which at least, you know, getting a legislature in this country to actually do anything, let alone something positive, is, is a real achievement. And there's been a whole flurry of legislation at the state level that have basically developed soil health policies and plans 
Now, they don't, many of them don't really have teeth, they're aspirational, but it's a movement in the right direction of recognizing the problem. Um, but in terms of national policy, I mean, there's been some some movement that in the U.S., the, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, what used to be called the Soil Conservation Service, has a big soil health program. But when you look at the funding they receive relative to conventional research through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, they're still round off error in terms of, right. of, the, of the national effort. And there's a lot of effort to try and change the farm bill in the U.S. And there's some good language that may end up in it this time around. Um, it may take a few iterations of changing that bill, but, you know, at the policy level, if we could disincentivize conventional practices through the subsidies that we now um, employ across the agricultural spectrum, that would help if we, you know, modified crop insurance policies. And, you know, what, what if we actually tried to reward uh, farmers for taking better care of their land, you know, and encourage regenerative practices? Um, we could basically greatly accelerate a transition to a, a more, a, you know, a more climate stable, climate friendly um, style of agriculture that could help us move towards a really a more sustainable economy. Um, you know, I choose to be an optimist on this issue. Um, I would love to see more uh, progress on a policy level. I'd love to see more politicians talking about our need to reinvest in the stability and profitability of small farms. But, you know, the reality is we also need large farms. And so, uh, you know, I'm not as concerned with the word industrial in agriculture as I am with what that industry is actually doing. And because I think you could have large scale regenerative agriculture, which by some means would be industrial, because, you know, you look at the largest farm I've been on that I would call regenerative was about a 20,000 acre farm in South Dakota. Huge operation. You could see horizon to horizon. Yeah. All mechanically um, um, managed. But they had so transformed their soil from what their conventional neighbors have that it was it was really quite impressive. And they did it through a combination of no-till cover crops and diversifying their rotation. So it kind of looked operationally like a typical North American large farm. But when you looked below the ground, it was totally different. Um, and they were growing different things. They were growing a diversity of plants. And if we, if we want farmers to grow a greater diversity of plants, which they need to, to really be regenerative, we need to eat a more diverse diet because if a farmer can't sell what they're growing, they're not going to keep doing it. And so the point I keep going back to in my perspective and in these books is that if we're going to really move towards a sustainable system of farming, we need to get society serious about sustaining farms and sustaining sustainable farms. Because if you can't sustain the farm, it's not going to be whatever practices you're using, it's not going to be sustainable. And right now we have all our most of our policies, almost all of our subsidies and incentives backwards in terms of promoting conventional practices and disincentivizing regenerative ones. We need to flip that around. And they're incentivizing the growing of the six core carbohydrate sources and not incentivizing a huge diversity of different things. Because if we're meant to be eating 40 or 50 different plant types a week to keep our gut biome healthy, they have to be there. I would struggle to name 40 or 50 different plant types, never mind find them to eat. So they've <laughs> got to be out there. Yeah, there, there's a very interesting study a couple of years back where somebody looked at, oh, well, okay, if you take the U.S. government's recommended dietary intake of, what was it, four or five servings of fruits and vegetables, I forget what the labels are, but you know, generally, you know, what is the American public eating? Well, nowhere near that. Yeah. And then they asked the next question, uh, which shouldn't be a surprise. I think we all kind of know that. But then what was the next question was, well, 
are American farmers growing enough such that if every American ate the recommended amount, could they find it? And, and we don't. We don't grow anywhere near enough. And that's a that's a national that's a national scale policy failure because if on the one hand the the part of our government that is entrusted with with promoting our health is saying we really should be doing this. And on the other hand, the part of our government that's encouraging farmers to you know, adopt particular practices is encouraging them to do a completely different thing. That's that's dysfunction at a, at a really high level. Yeah, we could spend another hour looking into the dysfunction. I know you have to go. I just have I have a tiny question, which maybe because this was a very good place to end. We need to eat more diverse. We need to support our local CSAs community-supported agriculture, you need yeah. to basically eat food that you have an idea where it was grown and it was grown near to you. Final question, though, because I'm really interested in this idea that we need big farms. I live in a world where we're nearing the end of the carbon pulse. And I listened to Simon Michaud. Uh, he's been on the podcast several times. And we're also at the end of the material supply chain pulse. And my worldview, I guess, is shaped by the fact that we're going to have to be much less reliant on power and that big farms need big power. Either that or they need an awful lot of people who are living quite like my ancestors who were basically spending their lives picking stones out of fields when they weren't weeding the thistles. And it wasn't a lot of fun. Um, so we need to find, we need to kind of get this mix of modern technology and the people who really want to come back and work on the land. I met so many young people at the conference this weekend who are desperate to work on the land, but they can't afford it because it's £10,000 an acre and where are you going to get that? That's a separate question. Do you envisage in this, do you, first of all, do you think we've got 30 years to change around the farming before everything falls around our head? And if we do, are you seeing big farms with big energy inputs surviving and how? That's a, that's a great question. And again, I wish I had that crystal ball. <laughs> um, but the I think we do have 20 or 30 years. And partly I think that because I don't see how we can make the change faster than that. Yeah, it's going to take that long in the best scenario. And I like to imagine the best scenario. So okay. um, now I don't think that we have 200 years. I'm confident of that. I doubt that we have 100 years. Um, and I'm pretty sure that we could take 20 or 30. That's the sort of the geologist in me sort of sort of thinking timescales like that in terms of, um, you know, but basically that what it means is we got to get down to it. <laughs> we got to get on it Sure. because 20 or 30 years, you know, uh, is not that long a period of time. No. Um, and there's a lot of inertia to the system. It's going to take a lot of change uh, at a lot of places and a lot of levels to generate the kind of systemic change that I think we, we both would like to see. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the small versus farm uh, issue, I imagine a world with a mix of farms. And, and I, I think it was in What's Your Food Ate, but it might have been in Growing a Revolution. I sort of talked, we talked a bit about, um, you know, three different sort of styles of farms that would could be encouraged to go regenerative with different kinds of policies. And at the one level, there's there's what, you know, we could call urban farms, you know, farms in cities. You know, Paris, for example, grew most of its vegetables in the city in the 19th century. Now, they used horse manure as fertilizer and grew it in big pots in certain places. But the reality is, is they grew a lot of food in the city. And if we look at where the people are today, it's increasingly in cities. And if we look at what's missing from our diets in the urban environments today, it's increasingly, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables. The vegetables in particular would be very well um, suited for growing in urban environments, whether in lots or, or market, what are they called? Um, allotments, I think it may be called in, in England. Um, here it's like pea yeah, patches absolutely. and things. 
you know, small patches where people could grow some of their food. You could grow a lot of food in the city. And if we had a system for composting our restaurant and household wastes, our organic matter waste back into compost that could fertilize stuff, you know, that, that's the distance to transport that well, in, in the same city, it's very, would be potentially very efficient. If you then think about sort of ringing major urban centers with farms that would be also producing vegetables um, for the most part, you could uh, imagine supporting sort of, you know, small scale farms of sort of the one to 10 acre kind of size. And some of the, some of the farms we visited and wrote about in What Your Food Ate were only a couple acres and they were growing, they were producing a phenomenal amount of food using regenerative practices. So you could imagine those kind of farms being the way to get pe- the, 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 the enthused young people who, who I see today as well, wanting to go into agriculture, figure out ways to help them get the financing to go into it. Cause it's a lot of capital to start a farm from scratch. If you're not, you know, a trust fundy. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the third style of farms uh, are sort of large farms that would be in more rural uh, areas that could be sort of bigger. And how big is too big? I don't know. Um, But when I think about how we're going to grow grains or how we're going to do meat and dairy, you know, it's probably not talking couple acre farms. You know, we're talking things that will probably be bigger than that, particularly for the grains. Um, and we would need different policies and incentives, but I, but I really actually believe that we could farm regeneratively at all three of those scales. We would just have to do it in ways that prioritize building the health of the soil over just producing as much as we can this year. Um, with, you know, and eventually once the soil is restored, we'll be able to, I think, match or exceed conventional yields. Cause that's all the evidence of the farm visits that I've had in the last 10 years. Uh, it suggests that that's true. The regenerative farmers who I've met who have restored fertility to their originally worn out farms, they're out producing their conventional neighbors on a per hectare basis. So the idea that, you know, we need modern conventional agriculture to feed the world. I don't buy that anymore. I think that's propaganda. Um, it's but it's propaganda sort of left over from the 20th century that sort of ignores all the science that uh, Anne was talking about earlier. Um, we need to reframe how we think about the soil to be able to rationalize policies um, that will help farmers um, farm differently, but in ways that will turn out better for them over the long run and far better for society over the long run and arguably better for our individual health if we shift towards eating more regeneratively grown products. Now, with big disclaimer about you know health, individual health is wildly complicated, wildly um, yeah, lots of variables and what your food ate is only one piece of that. Sure. But it's a piece that's been pretty much overlooked, I think, for the last hundred years. And that's what Anne, the point Anne and I are trying to make in this book is that it's, we should be thinking about that both individually and collectively in terms of what we want the shape of the future to, to be. Yeah, definitely. And you make the point really, really well in the book. David, thank you. We've run way over time. Very last, very short question. What are you going to write next? Because you guys... I'm guessing or, or your research keeps going on. Where are we heading? What can we look forward to? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thinking actually about trying to write a short book that synthesizes the four that we've written already. Um, just for those of you who may want to like li- read sort of the executive summary rather than the full meal deal, hopefully we encourage you to go back and get the full meal deal because Anne and I pride ourselves in trying to do well-referenced um, and supported arguments as opposed to politically motivated ones. Um, and uh, Anne is actually thinking about 
working on a book that's more about the relationship of phytochemicals and the botanical world and human health, uh, which also oh, sort of comes, builds off of what your food ate. So we'll see where we go with all that, but it's been a fun ride so far. And we very much appreciate the uh, people like yourself helping to draw attention to the books. And of course, the readers without which writers would not be able to do what we do. Absolutely. And and I am in awe, frankly, of your capacity to be a married couple and to write so coherently and so fluently and still stay married. It's astonishing and extraordinary and very lovely. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I won't say that it's frictionless, but I, but I will say that Anne has a lot of good ideas. There you go. And I'm guessing you have a lot of good ideas too. Genuinely, honestly, I think I, I think a short book that summarizes them all will be lovely, but I genuinely believe people's lives would be transformed by reading the the narrative arc that you have in What Your Food Ate and, and your previous books. So David, and Anne in absentia, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. This has been revolutionary in a good way. <laughs> Certainly. Happy to talk to you and enjoy the conversation. Well, there we go. That's it for another week. Huge thanks to Anne and to David for their time, for the astonishing depth and breadth of their understanding, and for their capacity to express it so clearly. These are highly, highly complex concepts, but they manage to distill them into something that those of us without multiple degrees can understand. And definitely, people, you do want to go and read the book. I have put a link in the show notes. It's beautifully written, and it goes into the history of how organic farming formed of how our diets have been deteriorating for quite a while and how various people along the way have noticed and tried to create food policy that will actually bring us back up to par. And now in the modern world, it's up to each of us. If you take one thing away from this, please take the absolute need to be part of the tipping point. We aren't going to get the huge agribusinesses to change just out of the goodness of their hearts. But if you can make a commitment to source an increasing amount of the food that you eat from local community agriculture enterprises, from the people nearest to you who are growing their food in the best way possible, then you are being part of the solution. Also, you are eating stuff that is good for you, that is what you were designed to eat. There's a double thing here. There's the carrot of, yay, helping farmers. And there's the stick of, if we all continue to eat the industrial rubbish, we are killing ourselves. So many of the diseases of modernity are down to what we're eating. And it's not just that we're poisoning ourselves with all of the absolutely grim residues from the many things that are thrown at the crops, though that is also the case. It's that the things are missing that we would be able to get from proper food grown in proper soils. And I know money is an issue. It's not cheap to produce proper food. It's certainly not as cheap as it is to produce stuff that's covered in subsidies from people who want us to continue to swallow the white carbs that keep everybody else very rich. Food deserts are a thing and they're not accidental. So. Do what is within your means. But if it is within your means, changing your diet is one of the fastest ways we can begin to change the system. So go for it. Systemic change is what we're here for. 
And personally, I think it's really urgent. So there we are. We will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, thanks to Caro C for the music at the head and foot, to Caro and to Alan for the sound production, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, to Faith for the website, for all of the background tech and for the conversations that keep us going. And as ever, an enormous thanks to you for listening. If you know of anybody else who wants to understand the interaction between living soils and living plants and living people, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.